this week on the Backtable Podcast. The best day I had, which was epic, I got four cases done in 68 minutes, I think it was, from the first patient arriving to the last patient leaving. I just spent an, basically an hour of my time and I got four sets of tubes in without any OR time. I stopped to think about it and looked at, you know, reimbursement rates aren't like, you're not doing this for the money by any means, but compared to what they pay you for the OR, it probably came out in ahead on those days, saved the patient's money and did better for my, my office. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Smith & Nephew is committed to embracing the power of tomorrow with a broad range of innovative ENT solutions. With products ranging from proprietary copulation technology devices to the two-list system for in-office tympanostomy procedures and epistaxis solutions, Smith & Nephew's portfolio fits seamlessly into the OR or office settings. Smith & Nephew's areas of focus in ENT include laryngeal adenotonsillectomy, turbinate reduction, epistaxis, and in-office tympanostomy. Learn more at smithnephew.com. Products may not be available in all markets because product availability is subject to the regulatory and or medical practices in individual markets. Now, back to the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast. My name is Gopi Shaw. I'm a pediatric ENT, and I'm here today with my co-host and partner in crime, Ashley Agan. How are you, Ash? Hey, good morning, Gopi. Excited to be here. Good to see you. We have a really awesome episode uh, and guest today. We have Dr. Jordan Schramm. He's a pediatric ENT practicing at Peak Pediatric ENT in Provo, Utah. Dr. Schramm attended medical school at the University of Rochester, completed an ENT residency at the University of Nebraska, and then finished a fellowship in pediatric ENT at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Jordan is here today to talk to us about in-office ear tubes in children. Welcome to the show, Jordan. How are you? I'm well, thank you. And thank you very much for having me. Thanks for coming on. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice? Sure, I'd be happy to. As you mentioned, I'm currently practicing in Provo, Utah, which is just south of Salt Lake, for those that are familiar. I've been in practice for seven years total, spent about a year and a half in academia and have been since that time in private practice. One of the focuses of my practice is pediatric hearing loss. Uh, It's one of my passions and um, I like to take care of the whole gamut of hearing loss, which we probably won't talk much of on this podcast other than all the kids that have hearing loss related to middle ear fusions. So that's a very brief background. I'm a Utah native and against all odds, made it back to my hometown, as it were. That's awesome. Yeah, today we're going to focus in on basically in-office myringotomy and tubes um, in kids. And so maybe give us a little bit of background on that. You know, how did you find yourself interested in that, doing that? Tell us more. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I kind of like to approach these discussions just with my experience. I, I did not get into this on purpose. For the background, in-office ear tubes in children, as I'm sure you're aware, it has been done for years and decades. And more recently, it's been there's been a little more interest because there's been a couple of newer devices on the market to try and facilitate it, since it doesn't really work all that well, like when you do it in adults. There's the Hummingbird device, which I have not personally used. And then there's the Tula tubes, which stands for tubes under local anesthesia, which is the device that I've been using 
And the uh, specifically the Tula uh, system was FDA approved, I believe, towards the end of 2019. And the company that originally developed this device, so the system, was soon after acquired by Smith & Nephew. And that was, I believe, in January 2020. And as they've told me multiple times, it's just impeccable timing for acquiring a new device. So early on after FDA approval, um, because of the pandemic, not many people were able to use it. That is the time when I first really started to look into doing Tula tubes. And more or less, it was my local rep saying, hey, we just bought this company. It's pretty cool. What do you think? And I was frankly very doubtful it would be a successful procedure. I don't know if doubtful is the right word. I was skeptical. Maybe that's a more fair word. And I had heard sort of peripherally about these devices, not in great detail, but eventually did my first case after spending a lot of time looking for the that perfect pediatric patient that could actually, in my view, tolerate a procedure in office. And that was in December of 2020 when I did my first case. So it was a little bit of a prompting from the rep, a lot of resistance on my part. Eventually, I thought, you know, it does make sense. Let's give it a try and see what happens. So in terms of your exposure to the technique, do they have a course or something that you try on cadavers first? Or is this something that you practiced using in the OR on your regular tubes? Or is it really just like, hey, it's not that hard. And, you know, you just kind of, it's a little click. So how do you, how'd you get comfortable with it? Yeah. So, I mean, in the end of the day, you're, you're putting tubes in your drums and we're all very comfortable doing that in the operating room. So it's not like it's the most technically difficult uh, procedure uh, concept for a practicing otolaryngologist. Um, they do have a relatively brief training session that the company comes in our case. And I think in most cases, they came over a lunch when I was in clinic and a few of my partners were in clinic. They don't have a cadaver head. They kind of have a, a dummy head with this sort of fake little eardrum that they can swap out. And they let, you, they let you get your hands on the device itself with a microscope and just get the feel of what it feels like to click that button and get it into a synthetic eardrum. And, and with that, it's like, as I recall, it was like an hour-long training or PowerPoint just to show you the details of the device and how it works. So the first time I actually used it in a patient was in a real-life awake patient in the clinic. So... Can we back up a little bit? Um, when we were preparing to first do this talk, I had to just kind of Google and look up, you know, the Tula system and what it looks like and what it's about. So can you just kind of talk a little bit about the the technology that they have to, to anesthetize the eardrum and how the device itself works just to kind of allow people to visualize what it looks like and what, what the device is? Sure. Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. It, it is a two-part system, like you mentioned, and that, I think, sets it apart from the other device. The local anesthetic is part of the whole system. And so most of the time of the case is actually getting the topical anesthetic to work and, and get through that process. So for Tula, it uses a process called iontophoresis, which we describe it to the families as a, as a gentle electric current. You place a plug into the ear, very similar in feel and shape to the plugs you would use for tympanometry or otocus commissions. But it's connected to an ear set and you fill that ear canal with local anesthetic with epinephrine. So for the families, we tell them, you know, this is basically the same medicine that they would use to numb your mouth at the dentist, but we're not injecting it with a needle. We're having it absorb into the, into the eardrum. And so um, the nuances of the setup are you got to get the ear set, set up so that it can not leak out that local anesthetic from the canal. 
And then it's connected to a little control unit that's sort of all self-contained. They're single use. They're pretty straightforward, user-friendly. And you go ahead and start the iontophoresis. The electric current slowly ramps up to the goal target. And assuming there's no interruptions, it runs for 10 minutes. And after 10 minutes, the entire surface of the tympanic membrane is anesthetized. And I usually tell families that's like 90, 95% of the procedure time is just getting that to go. As you're running this cyanophoresis, on occasion, it may be a little bit uncomfortable. Most patients tolerate it fine. But if it is a little uncomfortable, you can slow down the rate and it'll run for about 15 minutes instead of 10 minutes. And so far in the cases I have done, that has been just fine as far as tolerability of that of that process. So once all that complete, you remove all of that. And then, and then I go under the microscope and you actually do the tube insertion, which is kind of the cool piece. So the second part, it's a tube delivery system that is all prepackaged and ready to go. So it has essentially what looks like a little catheter attached to a handle. And in that catheter is a tube already loaded. And this, this device, you place, it has sort of a silicone tip. So it's, it's somewhat gentle. You place that up on the tympanic membrane and you click a button. From the time you click the button, it's a half a second. There are actually four things that happen. There's a little blade that goes in and out through the tympanic membrane, making the myringotomy, followed short right after by a little dilation device that dilates the myringotomy. And then the third piece is a small little sheath that goes through that tympanic membrane, and the tube gets inserted through that sheath. Everything pulls back, and the tube is left in the drum. And there's kind of a cool little video that on the teaching sessions we show where it shows that in really slow motion on a synthetic tympanic membrane um, from the underside as if you were looking from the middle ear space. And it just shows all those things happen. And then in real time, within less than a half a second, you just see this tube just pop into the drum. So that's, I think, kind of the fun part of the technology. But the, most of the work, like I mentioned, is just getting through the iontophoresis. And is the child just like sitting in the parent's lap when you're numbing them up for those 10 to 15 minutes? Or are they in the position? I, I just keep thinking of the chair flattened, the baby papoosed. Yeah. I can't imagine I'm keeping them papoosed for yeah. 15, 20 minutes. So how, how what's the positioning for the numbing? And then, it, or is it the same as they are just ready to go for that 15, 20 minutes? In order to do this efficiently, again, the analogy would be trying to do autocus commissions on a child. Once you put those plugs in, you don't want them to pull them out. And so right at the beginning, if it's a very young child, I will briefly swaddle them so we can just get all those little connections set up properly and get the ionophoresis running. And that's usually no more than three to five minutes. They don't have to be laying down necessarily. I tend to do that because my goal is to do it as quickly as possible because I, I find that minimizes the distress of the child if we can get it done quickly. So I get it all set up, and then as soon as it's set up and running, we kind of loosen up their hands, get them in mom or dad's lap, get them watching a movie, get them eating a sucker or whatever treat they have. And and as it runs, in the great majority of cases, they just kind of sit there being distracted. But they're not held flat in that position that you're going to have them for the actual tube insertion. Once that's all done running, you can take all that out. In many cases, I actually have a separate clinic room where I'm doing the anaphoresis, and I move them to the room that I have my microscope. And then that's where I really swaddle them up, get them nice and still. Parents are well informed beforehand that we'll be doing this and that for the very young children, they're not going to be happy with us because we're going to be holding them still. And a lot of good help with MAs and nurses to just get them swaddled, positioned, and get the tube inserted as quickly as we can 
on one side, swap them to the other side, and then release them and give them some type of a toy or sticker or something and get them out of the door. So you can do your ionophoresis bilaterally. You can get both ears getting anesthetized at the same time. Correct. Yeah. The, all the equipment, the control unit is designed for two ears. And so I typically set both ears all up and then start the running at the same time. And then typically we just have a timer running as well. But there are some indicators on the control unit, but it's not, it doesn't give you the actual time. The control unit is actually measuring how much voltage or current has run total. And if there is interruption with leakage of anesthetic or something and you have to restart it, it doesn't tell you exactly how long. So we kind of, I have um, a nurse or an MA in the room the whole time kind of monitoring things, which allows me once the once the antifreeze is running, I can step out and do other things. But there's just sort of a timer running on the computer just so we have an idea of how long it's been going. Have you done it on yourself? Like, have you felt the how the antifreeze feels just for... I have not. I probably should. <laughs> I would have to, I'd have to just purchase an extra unit or something, I suppose. Um, on the older patients or older kids, I should say, I haven't done any adults. Um, I don't see adults, but we've done some teenagers, you know, the 10 and older crowd. And typically uh, we have taken the opportunity to just say, hey, what does this actually feel like? Because they can actually give us feedback. And most of us say, oh, it kind of feels like a little bit of an itch in there or maybe a little tingle, but uh, none of them have been distressed by the feeling of it. Yeah, I think that's the most interesting part about this is kind of that whole part of it. And does it does the eardrum change visually at all? You know, because like with phenol, we get a little bit of that blanching. So is there any sort of cue visually to tell you, OK, the drum is numbed up or um, it looks normal? Not really. <laughs> It's granted, I'm not necessarily doing a very, a super thorough binocular exam right before, uh, just because I know I'm going to be, I, I do a little bit, you know, you want to clean out wax from the ears before you put all the ionophoresis materials in the, in the canal, but I'm not getting to those subtleties. I, I suspect you, you could see maybe some less prominent vasculature on the tympanic membrane because there is epinephrine in the solution, but from a practical standpoint, you're looking at a, a little kid's ear. It just looks like a drum. One of the steps that that we describe is to do a, a tap test. So once once you've run the ionophoresis and you're then examining, getting ready to actually insert the tube, there's all these sort of pediatric-friendly phrases that they recommend. And you say, okay, we're going to do this little tap tap. And basically, you take it's described taking a rose in and touching the tympanic membrane. For the older kids, that's super useful. If you were to do this in adults, that'd be super useful because they can feel... And I have had most of them that have been a little bit older haven't even, you, you, you poke the drum, which most people, as you know, would fly off the chair. They don't even move. It's very obvious if it's if it's numb. I've had a couple that have been sort of probably partially numbed, maybe not fully numbed, but that's the only time you really get that feedback. The, the tricky thing is if you're, if you're two and under ballpark on your patient, almost certainly they're going to be upset from the swaddling and positioning. And so I kind of do a tap test all at the same time as the as using the actual tube delivery system and click the button. Um, and the analogy I would use for that would be, you know, those of us that do a lot of scopes of kids in, in clinic, um, heavy pediatric practices. Um, if they're old enough, sometimes I'll spray some topical on their nose, sometimes I won't, but usually they're just upset anyway. So um, we just kind of get it done. In terms of the tube, is this kind of like a paparella or is it more rigid? And what's the size dimension? Is it? It's a silicone tube. And, and in order to have it in that little delivery system, it has to be packaged pretty tightly. It's very comparable to a paparella type tube or a collar button tube as far as 
size and function. The precise diameter is the inner diameter of the lumen is 1.14 millimeters, so pretty standard. The flange, the lateral flange that you'll end up seeing after it's inserted is it's narrower than, I like to use collar button tubes as my standard tube in the OR. It is a little bit narrower than that just because it has to fit through the delivery system. That turns out to be 2.1 millimeters in diameter for that lateral flange. Medially, it's more like three separate flanges. So if you're familiar with triune tubes, that sort of concept, except that they're just little flat flanges. And if you look at the diameter, the outer diameter, as it were, of that lateral flange is 3.25 millimeters. So they're not super bulky, but they're bulky enough that it's more or less like having a medial flange of a collar button tube to keep it in place. How long do they stay in for? Like, is it, a, you know, six months to two years on average, nine to 15 months? Is it the standard? That's my spiel for PAPs, Paprellas. Is that what the spiel is for, for these or... More or less, yeah. It's the same type of duration. There is some good data. I think the Wide Journal just this fall published the updated data and the literature that they've published. The mean duration before extrusion is 16.8 months with a median of 15.8 months. And so if you look at similar tube types, you know, our standard, whatever, paparella or collar button or whatever your preference is, the literature is very sparse, not very accurate on that, but you can find studies ranging anywhere from seven months to 18 and a half months on those types of tubes. So when I'm describing this tube, I basically tell families, this is going to be the same type of tube as I would put in the operating room as far as function and duration. It's a short lasting standard tube. And as you're looking for the appropriate patients for this, for an office tube. If we kind of take all the kids that have an indication for tubes in the OR, we don't have to go into all that part, but is there a subset of those patients where you're like, this is perfect for the office? And then also a subset where you're like, definitely don't do these in the office. Yeah, for sure. At this point, I've been doing these for quite a while. In fact, we've done in our practice, we've done just over a hundred cases now. I have evolved over the last couple of years to essentially offer to any patient that I feel is a good candidate anatomically and that the family is a good candidate. And I feel it's as much about parent selection as it is patient selection. And this is where it's important to have some good shared decision making. When I first started doing these, within the first year to year and a half, I only did three cases. And early on, I was looking for older kids that I felt could be reasoned with and tolerate all the different things we were going to do. And it's hard to find that, frankly. Those are not most kids that need your tubes. <laughs> and so... And they're not always, always going to cooperate with you either. Even You think that they will, but, but they don't always cooperate either. Sometimes it makes it more <laughs> difficult when they can resist, right? <laughs> I guess where things really changed for me is I, I came to a place where I was like, you know, this is kind of cool, but if I'm going to just do this three times a year... Is it really worth it, all the headache in my practice to, to do this? And internally, I said, you know, I'm just going to offer this for all our standard candidates. It's FDA approved down to six months of age. Most of the kids that are going to need their tubes are going to be between six months and two or three years. Let's just do it. It's not going to necessarily have the same uh, feel as the videos uh, that you'll probably see posted um, where the kids are just happily watching their iPad and you just put tubes in. But that's okay. And as long as we talk to families and help them understand all the pros and cons, I've been surprised at how many families are like, all gung-ho, let's, let's get this done in the clinic. So a lot of the discussion is, okay, what, what are the downsides of doing tubes in the operating room? Well, we know about the fasting. 
Parents hate it when their kids are starving. They go to the operating room environment. They have to get all changed. It's uncomfortable. There's a lot more time off from work, time off from school. The side effects of general anesthesia, almost universally, no matter the anesthesia protocol, when my, when my ear tube patients wake up, they are delirious and screaming. And you know how they are. If you do more than a few in a row, especially at a surgery center, you just have this chorus of kids that are just screaming. And you just have to tell families in those cases, they will be delirious. I'm sorry. It'll, it's, it truly is the anesthetic effects. And it may be 20 or 30 minutes, it may be a few hours. And they kind of get through all that. There's increasing uh, concerns out, I think, in the public and in the medical profession about just the general anesthesia itself in kids. And so those are all the negative things. And so when I started talking about the in-office option, you know, we focused on the whole point of this is uh, the end result is no different. You get a tube, a little silicone tube in the eardrum. Really, you're changing the location. In the clinic, we go into detail, you know, your, your child's not going to be very happy when I swaddle them. It's no surprise. They're just not going to want me to do that to them. We try and minimize the time. We try and be efficient so that, so that we minimize that, that distress. We try and incorporate some principles of child life. We don't have full child life, but we try and do this kind of one voice. We don't have too many voices going on. All these principles are the same thing with any in-office procedure, scopes or otherwise in children. And when you're upfront with the families about, yeah, your kids too, they're going to be upset briefly. When I'm done with the procedure, with, usually within minutes, they're back to normal. You get them out unswaddled, you get them out of the clinic. By the time they get down three floors from my clinic to the parking lot, they're their normal self. And so uh, the bottom line is, I tell families for these younger kids, your child's going to be upset. They're probably going to cry and scream either way. In one case, they're delirious and inconsolable. In the other case, as soon as we're done, you're done. There are some families or parents that are just not comfortable with that. You know, often, not always, often they're younger Maybe they themselves have some anxiety issues. By and large, families are like, well, if I can do it in the office, that sounds like a better option. And so I think the success rate of having successfully placed tubes in the clinic is a lot higher if you're careful about that selection process. If you have a family that has been through the OR before for any reason, for ear tubes or otherwise, it's not even anything I need to convince them on. They are almost always on board before I can even give them the whole spiel. Mm -hmm. So... Do you ever have kids that they come in for their tube check after now they won't let you examine them? Or is there any sort of, have you noticed any percentage of kids that have an associated anxiety when they come back for follow-up visits because of the experience? That's a great question. I I have been trying to follow my, my data pretty closely because this is a newer thing. Uh, that is one data point, at least retrospectively, I have not really been able to gather. Anecdotally, it's a little bit variable that first post-procedure visit, depending on how soon you do it. If you're doing it a couple weeks later, they may be a little upset with you. I wouldn't say I've had any so upset that I couldn't get the exam done. Many of them are getting a post-operative bodygram as well. So our pediatric cardiologist may say, oh, that kid didn't really like me. If it had been two or three months later, much less likely that they're going to remember that. By no means is it every child is like, they, they won't forgive you. And by the time you get to the later follow-up, six to 12 months later, I haven't seen it be an issue. I think I've only had one kid that really was holding a grudge, but that was an older kid that was seven or eight years old. And on one of the sides, I think he was just a little bit inflamed. And local anesthesia doesn't work quite as well when you have infection going on, as you know. And so I think he felt the one side a little more. So I don't see it as a big problem. I think it's sort of a temporary thing. And in terms of anatomy and like favorable or not favorable anatomy, think of like a anterior canal overhang or, you know, something difficult to kind of really get around. 
What what other anatomical things are you looking for when you make a patient selection? And also the child that does come in who, yeah, you know, we just took him to the pediatrician, you know, they just started a MOX two days ago and you still see a raging acute OM. Do you ever have to cancel those because of num- not because it's not going to be as numbed up or that making the procedure more complicated for any reason? Sure. So yes, you need to have favorable anatomy. It can be tricky to get around that anterior bony overhang. I think I did have one of the failures that I had was a kid that had a history of cleft lip and palate, and they tend to have more narrow canals anyway. And it was a little bit older kid, but also just the angle of the tympanic membrane. You really need to find a, pe- a portion of the drum that's perpendicular. If you're not getting this device seated up fully under the drum, you'll have a short shot, as we call them. And I had one of these that we tried a couple of times and just could not get that tube to go in. And I think it was just too acute of an angle, not enough surface area of the drum that was perpendicular that I couldn't get it in. If you have a really atelectatic tympanic membrane retraction pockets, I think it's fine if it's just your regular degree of retraction from a chronic middle ear fusion. But if it's if you're worried about retraction pocket or atelectasis, it's probably not the ideal candidate. You know, maybe a ton of sclerosis or operative ears with cartilage grafts and the like. A lot of those cases or, or those types of kids are not not the best candidates. It can be a little bit tricky to have a large enough canal in the 6 to 12 month range because the, the diameter of the device that you're actually putting in is about, I think it's just slightly over 2 millimeters. And so the smallest speculum I can really get it through is about a 3.5 millimeter speculum. And if you're, you know, under a year of age, you can't. You can only go so far in with a speculum of that size. You're sort of seeing some of that cartilaginous canal in your view. If you get the right view and you know that you're looking at that sort of anterior inferior tympanic membrane where it is most perpendicular, I think in many cases you can get that done, but not for a first case. You want to get a few cases under your belt before you start doing a lot of those. The second question I think you asked about the acute infection. I can't think of a time I've canceled it. I, I could see that could potentially come up. Anecdotally, for sure, I think the local anesthetic is less effective if there's a raging infection. And I have placed them with active infections going on. And in some ways, it can be gratifying because as soon as that tube goes in, all that pus is coming right out at you. And in my clinic where I do these procedures, my microscope's connected to 4K screens on either side of the wall so the families see it. And they're like, whoa, their kid's screaming, but they're like, it's like that (laughs) satisfaction of, I just saw, it's like a pimple popper MD type of a a video. So I haven't yet had the situation where I've canceled because of that, but that's something that you could consider. And after you get the tube in, are you doing a lot of suctioning, you know, like if you have a kid that's got like that thick mucoid effusion, glue ear, like how much time, I mean, you're, you're trying to work quickly because, you know, maybe mm-hmm. they're, they're upset. And so how much time do you spend like trying to suck all that stuff out? The short answer is zero. I don't do it at all anymore. <laughs> Very early on, you know, the first uh, mucoid effusion or two that I did, that sort of glue ear, I tried to suction it out with a three suction a little bit, which, as you know, is completely futile. Even a five suction, if you're in the OR with those cases, often is inadequate. You got to irrigate and or even you go to the seven or whatever. And the other thing about these tubes, they're silicone and they're malleable. If you grab onto them, you can actually pull them out of the drum pretty easily because they come out about as easy as a T-tube. If you suction with a five suction, you're going to be wider than the diameter of the tube. I've heard of cases being where the tube has been suctioned out by the suction. I haven't done that myself, but you could pretty easily suction the tube out. 
this is where I really had to force my mindset to change because when you're in the operating room, of course, you're going to suction. You kind of have to because when you make the myringotomy, often it obscures your visualization just to get the tubes in. You need to suction. And even if you didn't need to suction, there's fluid there. Of course, you're going to suction, right? Even still, when I'm in the OR, I still suction. Even if I don't conceptually, I definitely know I don't have to suction out all that fluid, but it's hard not to. And you just don't have that luxury in the clinic. And this is where it's been useful to follow some of my outcomes from the Tula tubes in the clinic where I'm not doing any suctioning and looking at rates of obstructed tubes, rates of obstructed tubes that are bad enough that I need to go back to the OR. For those mucoid effusions, I actually recently looked at this data to update one of these presentations. About 15% of them were obstructed if it was classified as a mucoid effusion, at least in our internal data. And this is of about, let's see, 53 years that had a mucoid effusion at the time of placement. Only three of those tubes needed to have something done in the operating room. Two of them was on one patient that ended up having large adenoids. And actually that one had a lot of drainage, it just wouldn't stop. One was removed and replaced because the obstruction, we just couldn't get it cleared. So I haven't looked at my data for the OR tubes placed under those circumstances, but it's not unheard of for those also to have the same problem. You just got to rely on the fact that they're pressure equalizing tubes. And once you equalize that pressure, everything should get better. And that was hard to do for me mentally, but I think I'm finally to a place where I just put the tube in and let the tube do what it needs to do. Does everybody get drops? Do you follow the newest guidelines that are not recommending drops for every case? What are your thoughts? Excellent question. This actually has made it easier for me to adopt those new guidelines for my Tula tubes. If there's no fluid or infection, I'm not prescribing drops. Um, I'm doing drops for the mucoid effusions or the infections. Early on for like the serous effusions, I was doing drops. And I've actually kind of gone away from doing drops even for the serous effusions if they look pretty watery. I've tried to do that in my OR practice for tubes. It's been harder to implement there. There's a lot of other systems in place. But yeah, I would say more or less those new guidelines I've adopted with implementation of this uh, in-office procedure. And do you ever, when you're doing the procedure, does the numbing and the epi also cover the medial bony canal as well? So I guess my question is, what do you do if you have any bleeding in the medial canal when you're trying to put the speculum in or when you're putting the device in? The iontophoresis really is only effective on the tympanic membrane. You don't really get any significant effect on the canal. And so it still is a lot like playing, you know, it's real life operation. If you bump the canal, they're going to be upset. Families usually like that analogy. And it's going to probably bleed like it would any other time. Now, you're not going in with a knife, so you don't have quite as sharp of instruments going in. So you're less likely to have a lot of bleeding from that. Occasionally, you have some bleeding from the myringotomy site, like you could have in the operating room. I haven't seen that as a big problem, but if you really kind of hypothetically, if you're going to have trainees start to do this that don't have a lot of just myringotomy or even ear cleaning experience, if you abrade that canal, then it's probably going to obstruct your view, and then you're dealing with suctioning, and there's a good chance you're not going to complete that case. So... It takes some finesse not to not to traumatize the canal during the procedure. Do you have to be super thorough with suctioning that um, iontophoresis fluid out? Like, does the canal need to be perfectly dry? Do you have to worry about that going through the tube after you put the tube in? Or, it, you know, you can just kind of like suction most of it out and then it's fine? In most cases, because between finishing the iontophoresis and setting them up to actually do the tubes, they're setting up right and moving around and Usually we're kind of drying off the outside because that fluid just kind of drips out as soon as you take the plugs out. A lot of it is completely gone or mostly gone. 
And the only suctioning I do of the iontophoresis fluid, that local anesthetic with epinephrine, is if there's sort of a, a droplet right on the tympanic membrane in that medial canal that's obstructing my visualization, and then I'll just use a three suction. And not too uncommonly, you will have cleaned the, the ear already prior to iontophoresis, but then you give them this whole quote-unquote bubble bath <laughs> for 10 or 15 minutes, the, the wax can loosen up. And so right when you're getting that visualization, it's not uncommon you're revising a little bit of the, the cleaning. And if I need to suction a little bit out, it's gone. Because again, you're under under the microscope, any significant amount of fluid, you got to get out of the way just to facilitate an accurate placement of the device. I don't, I don't find that it ever really makes it to the middle or left or any significant portion goes through. So my two big, um, when I think about uh, ear tubes and kids in clinic, the two big things that come to my mind is if I dunk it, is it going to be hard for me to get out? Because then they oh, I can just pull it out. And then my other concern is, have you ever had times where you just can't do the other side? Like the child is just like, nope, we're not going to the other side. Get me out of here. Okay. So for the <laughs> dunking question, uh, I've done a lot of these presentations and I had never dunked a tube. It's actually pretty difficult to dunk a tube if you have a normal tympanic membrane. You have to press pretty hard. One of the weird nuances I didn't realize I'd have to get used to is when you're putting this tube delivery system, this TDS right up on the drum, in order to make sure it's going to go in, you have to fill a little bit of that feedback that you're fully on the drum, which is a weird sensation in a, in a child that's awake. And they usually feel that pressure. If you have an atelectatic tympanic membrane, you could push through it and medialize the tube for sure. Last week, I had a case. Maybe I'm getting more brave now that I'm doing this for a while, but I had this super awesome kid that I've seen for years that has trisomy 21, a little bit older, uh, elementary school age kid. And one of her tubes was out, one was in. Uh, I talked to mom about it. She's always been super chill in the clinic. So we took this child for a unilateral Tula. The family really didn't want T-tubes. And, and so I did it on a unilateral on that child. And she tolerated the whole procedure amazingly well. As soon as I did it, I saw that I had medialized it. And I suspect what happened is that that drum was probably more atelectatic than I realized. But the tube was just sitting right underneath the myringotomy, and she was chill enough that I just, like you would do in the OR, grabbed it with an alligator, pulled it back, got it positioned with the rosin, and she was probably my best patient that day in spite of all of that. So I have now had one case where I dunked it. I think if you had a really wiggly child that was really older, that would be really difficult to do. What I have done on a handful of the short shots where uh, occasionally you'll deploy a device, it makes the myringotomy, but the tube is not fully inserted. I have salvaged that with the rose and just pushed it the rest of the way in and adjusted it a little bit. Similar concept. Those kids, because I'm setting them up with, you know, I have a nurse holding the heads really still. I have family helping the child hold still with the swaddle and everything. It's not like as soon as I deploy it, they're moving everywhere. They're trying to, but I'm kind of keeping them still. And then uh, we already have that position, so we just turn the head and do the other side. So, so far, if I've been successful on the first side, I've been able to be successful on the second side. I've had, at least in our practice, we've had three that behaviorally just could not tolerate the procedure. All three of them tolerated the iantophoresis really well, but they were all bigger and or older kids that could not be fought. The first time this happened to me, it was about a two and a half, almost three-year-old kid, and I did not have that kid swaddled. I had family trying to keep him still. And we tried and we tried and it didn't work. We ended up going to the OR after that. And he did well after. Family wasn't disappointed or anything. We kind of were transparent beforehand that this could happen. What I took away from that experience is I, I tend to swaddle kids older than I normally would, like up to age three. Anticipatory <laughs> swaddling, as it were, just so that we know that we can get it done. 
Yeah, that's what I was about to ask you that about how if everyone's getting swaddled, even bigger kids, um, just because they, they look like they're going to be fine. And then all of a sudden and there's the bigger they get, the stronger they get. So, yes, uh, I think I think the three to four year range is the most difficult age because they're big enough that you can't really swaddle them or restrain them in any way. But they're still small enough that if they decide they're done, they're done. And then once they kind of get past that age, they're usually at least reasonable enough we can work with them and, and get it taken care of. But yeah, I think the amount of time in the swaddle, again, for these kids that are, I don't know, uh, 18 months to three, where I am swaddling them, I'm not doing any swaddling for the anaphoresis. They, they all handle it just fine. For the really little kids, I'll swaddle them to start the anaphoresis and then loosen them up. And actually, a lot of the two to three-year-old kids that I've swallowed, you think they're going to be upset. Actually, they haven't been that upset with the swaddle if they're kind of just playing with them. Like, hey, look, look at this thing. It's going to give you a big hug. And mom's right here. And then and then before they know it, their head's being held still. And then and then they realize something's about to happen. They get upset. But the, the nice thing is you can really minimize the actual swaddle time and thereby minimize the psychological trauma to the child just to that portion of the procedure. Can we just clarify swaddle? So... When you're swaddling, is it just a sheet or is it swaddle them in the sheet, but they're on a papoose and now we've also papoose because that's what I think of in terms of, you know, taking out ear form bodies, taking out a nasal form body. My patients are usually on a papoose, like we swaddle them in the sheet, but they're on a papoose board and the straps are on because they tend to squirm and, you know, and mom and dad, you know, somebody might be kind of still hugging their legs maybe. And my nurse is, you know, has the head and I'm on the other side, but... um. Now you're getting into the nitty gritty, aren't you? I, uh... I want to know, Jordan, <laughs> that, that detail might uh, be the, uh, the, the thing. <laughs> I, I think you could do any of those techniques. I, I guess the reason I use the word swaddle so much is when I'm talking to families, it's a lot less scary if you're saying we're swaddling than if we're going to strap your okay. kid down, you know? <laughs> I don't actually have any papoose boards in my clinic. I haven't seen those since my training. Um, and I, they just feel a little barbaric. So I just haven't done that in my practice. But the, when right. I, but the actual material I'm using, um, you know, the sort of stretchier, sw I don't know if either of your parents, but I found out about these be becoming a parent myself. The um, there's the really jumbo size, stretchy actual swaddles. We 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 have dozens and dozens of those in our clinic, and so any of our kids that need uh, what we would have used a papoose board for during training, I use these really big swaddles. So there's not actually a hard board underneath. The chairs are sort of standard ENT chairs, slightly wider than usual. So when they lay flat, it feels much more like a like a regular bed. Um, so they're just they they truly are swaddled tight, and with that sort of stretchy give to it, you can get them pretty darn snug. But you do often have mom and dad holding hands and hips. I always tell mom, mom or dad, whoever's doing the, doing the work, hands and hips opposite from me. So the child's looking opposite from me. They can have them sort of face to face with their parent and sort of comforting as best they can, but also holding them still, obviously. Keep the hands from getting out of the swaddle. Keep the hips from moving around. If it's a really big kid, there may be a, another, a third person holding the legs so that when they're kicking, it's not jiggling things around. And, and I have my staff, my MA or my nurse, really holding the head still. And they do a lot of working out, so they just keep that head still for me. And then I'm just focused on the microscope. And as best as I can, I just try and use my normal calming voice, even if the kid is screaming their guts out. Um, <laughs> everything's okay. It's going to be fine. And as much as anything, you're keeping your own nerves calm. You're kind of keeping parents' nerves calm. But again, if you don't have the right parent selection from the get-go, it's not going to go well. These are parents that are, they want this done, and they're willing to do this. And they do not want to go to the OR. And so 
even with the most difficult kids that I've done, I have yet to have a parent come back and say, boy, that was traumatic. I would never do that again, save for maybe one of the older kids that was just really upset. So uh, that has been the surprising thing and so, sort of the paradigm shift for me is it's amazing how much I'm able to do now in the clinic that I just never thought I could because in training, you don't do that. And in some ways, it's allowed me to do some things in clinic that I would not have beforehand. Like there are times where I like to, when I do tubes in the OR, I tend to use silicone material. So if I have a silicone collar button tube, I've been able to pull those out of the traumatic memory in clinic in some of these kids whereas I never would have attempted that before. And it's all these same principles of, okay, preparing the family, make sure they're okay with it, make sure they know there might be some discomfort, let's see what we can do and what we can't do. And we kind of balance the pros and cons of doing it here with a little bit of discomfort versus going to the OR with everything that the OR is. So, Yeah, I mean, it's like an adult when you're thinking about doing an office procedure, your gut tells you, you know, like just as you're talking to the patient, as you're doing the nasal endoscopy, you know, if they're like, holding on to the chair, you know, like super stressed out, you're like, no, this is not going to be a good office candidate. So I'm sure, you know, like if you're able to look in the kid's ear under the microscope, depending on, you know, can you look and clean out wax? How's the fan? You know, what's the vibe? Very similar thing as far as kind of deciding who's good for clinic and who's not. Absolutely. I think I think the word vibe is perfect. <laughs> you walk in the room, the kid's screaming at you just by you walking in the room. I'm not thinking Tula necessarily, although occasionally the families are like, yeah, I want to do that and I'll hold my kid down. It's rare. Whereas other times, I, you know, when I was first doing it, I was doing a full microscopic ear exam with a removal of wax to see how good they would do, how well they would tolerate that. Now, if they can just tolerate a standard otoscopy in a reasonable manner without too much upset and the family's good at just, you know, holding the kid on their lap and moving the ear to the side. To me, that's good enough because I know that's going to be the same process once we're doing it. I'm going to have to do the swaddle or I try not to use the word restraint because there's more paperwork with that. Um, I know that's going to have to happen either way in those age groups. And so if, if I can get a reasonable view with the otoscope in the clinic and it's a kid that needs tubes, we'll have the discussion, talk about pros and cons of both options and let them decide. In terms of rates of retained tubes or perfs, is it pretty similar to the standard paparellas or collar button uh, that people use in the OR with these tubes? Yeah, the short answer is yes. Um, and again, they have published uh, some data already. Again, there's a laryngoscope paper that followed up by a white journal paper looking at those rates of perforations, retained tubes. And the short answer is it's pretty much identical. In my own practice, I didn't really ramp up. I did my first case in December 2020, I mentioned, but it wasn't until the fall of 2021 before I started doing them regularly. And um, so I, ha I haven't had the luxury of following my personal cases far enough to see that yet. I know I've had one case of uh, bilateral perforations after extrusion about a year and a half later. I've had several that have extruded in a normal time frame. My very early data, they seem to be behaving just like any other short-term tube as far as complication rates are concerned. Yeah, I can't help but think about just like overall cost. Like it's got to be significantly less expensive to be able to come in and do it. Like just taking the hospital and the anesthesia and all of that out of it seems like it would be a lot more like cost efficient. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. It's for sure way less expensive overall. It is a new enough device that there's still not a a standard CPT code for the procedure yet. And so that's one of the nuances once you get to the sort of the business side of, the, of implementing this in your practice. 
There's a category three code, which you're probably familiar with. Category three codes are when you have a newer device or technology that's being implemented. And the category three code for Tula tubes is very specific to Tula. It's not for any in-office tube. And it describes in great detail using iontophoresis for topicalization of the tympanic membrane and an automated tube insertion device. So if you read through the code, it doesn't say Tula, but it's like describing the entire Tula procedure. Mm -hmm. And that's the code that we use for billing. And at some point, usually these category three codes, eventually you can get a category one code, just like your other codes for billing. With a category three code, there are no RVUs attached to that. And there are there's no specific amount to bill attached to that. And and this was a big part of the learning experience implementing this into my practice is, oh, how, how do we actually make this a viable thing? And how do we make it so families can afford it? Because there is some a lot more cost to the device itself, but you're eliminating all of the facility fees. And so overall, it is way less expensive to the system and to families to do this. I went into this, when I started implementing this, I, I figured this is gonna be a learning curve for me to some degree. And for the first few cases, I don't know if I'll get any reimbursement or not. I'll maybe have kids with free ear tubes. Early, very early on, I was okay with that because of the own, my own learning curve. I've been pleasantly surprised, at least where I practice, that there are enough insurances that have covered this. It, it has become a viable option for my practice. And um, there is one national insurance that has this, this CPT code, this Category 3 code, as a covered benefit, and that's Cigna. So Cigna patients, it's, wow, I, I can do it just like any other year two. All the other national carriers, it's, it's spotty or hit and miss, and there's a lot of conversations going on with those carriers to show that we should probably be covering this. The smaller insurances, the very, very small ones, they don't have the same power in the market pace to negotiate with hospitals and surgery centers. And so they have higher, they're, they're paying out more than the, their big brothers and sisters. They have not questioned at all paying for this procedure because they they've themselves see the financial benefit right away. There's a regional health carrier in, in the Intermountain West that's sort of part of the Intermountain system or a subsidiary that's called Select Health. That is not as big compared to your big Blue Cross Blue Shield, but it's pretty big in our area. And even on that front, they've been reimbursing adequately to cover the device and and a professional fee to make it a viable thing for me. And And so while they're not super small, they're not super big, they're seeing the benefit as well. That is probably the biggest area from a practical standpoint that we still are working on more progress. So I am participating in a registry for some of my patients that's being sponsored just really to get more real world data. And there's supposed to be, I think, about 10 sites across the country participating. And so I do have some patients that are able to get this procedure covered by the company by agreeing to download an app and give feedback on how tolerable was this, how long do we have any complications. They'll be followed for the next few years. But it's not a study that's, that's changing my practice. It's just basically, let's get even more data, even more above and beyond the published data that got this device already approved by the FDA to show to payers that this is in fact safe and effective and probably will save the healthcare system money as well. Was it difficult to train up your staff? Because you have a pediatric practice, your staff's pretty familiar with getting the child set up for you. Yeah, so I, I benefited greatly in that I only see kids. And in fact, in our practice, I have a separate office within our bigger practice that is sort of our pediatric office. And so I have a subset of three or four nurses and MAs that see all my patients with me anyway, and they're very accustomed to helping me with procedures. So there was some training that's Tula specific that the company was good about coming and training the staff on all the different parts of the, of the device so they can assist me. But it wasn't a very steep curve as far as the principles of swaddling and helping me 
keep the child still to do procedures. All that was already built in. If you do not have a very heavy pediatric practice, you may have a, a much steeper learning curve to do this regularly in your clinic. Do you have like a workflow or a procedure day or, you know, a morning where it's just... Yeah. So when I first started doing it, I just sort of worked it into the day because I was only doing one randomly here and there. And it was it was okay, but it was a little bit tricky. Once I started doing them regularly and I had, I think, at least 10 or 15 cases done, I, I started doing maybe two on a day. I, I worked myself up to four in a day, or I should say in an afternoon. And I may have to expand that because I have a little better access temporarily for this procedure. But typically what I do now is every other week on a Thursday afternoon, Normally, I see clinic patients at least starting times between 8 a.m. and 4.30 p.m. The last hour and a half or so of my clinic is blocked out for two of the cases on every other Thursday. So that gives me enough time to get four cases done and have all my staff focused on just the TULA workflow. So it kind of turns it into a mini in-office procedure suite. I mentioned I have four total clinic rooms that are set up for ENT, but only one of them has a microscope as kind of the procedure room. The others are more standard ENT rooms without a microscope, and our microscope is mounted up on the ceiling, so it's nice. It's sort of out of the way. So for my workflow now, I will bring the first patient back, start them with the iondivresis, get it all set up myself personally, and make sure it's running. Once it's running, I know I've got about 10 minutes or so. I go and bring the, the next patient back for the next case and start the iondivresis. By the time that's set up and running, usually that first iondivresis patient is done. I've had a nurse or an MA monitoring it the whole time. They can do simple things, like if there's a small little leak, they can top off a little bit of that numbing medication. But really, it's it's you as the physician doing all this work. There's not a lot of room for like a mid-level to do all this. Um, and that's another place where it's really important to have a nurse that actually understands the system. If it gives you an error on the on the device to, to restart the anaphoresis. Occasionally, I have to go in and tweak it or maybe replace a, an earplug so that it can run. But being able to alternate cases makes it really efficient. And then once once that first case is done running, move them over to the procedure room and do the actual insertion and then continue on. So I usually get four cases done total. Usually that's total from the first TULA patient arriving to the last patient leaving my clinic. Because there is some overlap in procedure, it's probably an average of an hour and a half on a difficult day, maybe two hours. The best day I had, which was epic, I got four cases done in 68 minutes, I think it was, from the first patient arriving to the last patient leaving. If I can use the word epic, I don't know if that's outdated. But, <laughs> you can use that. Um, <laughs> um, it was like, wow, I just spent an, basically an hour of my time, and I got four sets of tubes in without any OR time. And That's amazing. I stopped to think about it and looked at you know, reimbursement rates aren't like, you're not doing this for the money by any means, but compared to what they pay for the OR, it's probably came out ahead on those days, saved the patient's money and did better for my, my office. So yeah, it, it can be done, but it's not day one. And just thinking about your time, when I moved to start doing things in the office, it's just so like, you know, I'm the rate limiting step as opposed to when you're in the operating room, there's a lot of you know, you're waiting on things to happen that are just out of your control. And so th there's a, something really nice about being able to kind of run your procedure days because you're saving your time too, which is, you know, also very valuable. 100%. 100%. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I, I'm fortunate the last couple of years at a couple of the surgery centers where I operate, where they've given me two rooms at a time. And those are the days in the OR where I actually become the rate limiting step. But most ORs, you're not the rate living step. You have a lot of built-in time for turnover, talking to families, anesthesia time. 
in the office, I truly am the rate limiting step, just like when you're seeing regular clinic patients. So for sure, you can boost your efficiency that way. Well, as we round it out, any final tricks or pearls or anything you want to leave our listeners with? I think the biggest thing for me is just, I just had to open my mind to the possibility. I've been pleasantly surprised with how much I can get done. I do think there's going to be a different learning curve for you if you have a very heavy pediatric practice versus if you're doing very minimal. And part of that is you as a physician, probably a lot of it is your office staff and your office setup. But just have a conversation with families. I'm not in the habit of looking at what the payer is on a patient that I'm seeing, whether it's a government payer or otherwise. I just kind of see the patients. And I've sort of just explained to the families both options, whether or not they're going to have an insurance that will actually pay for it or not. And, you know, let them know that, you know, it's not fully covered by all insurances yet. I think eventually we'll get there. But it's just nice to have the conversation and see patients' reactions. And you may be surprised at how many families are just primed, dying to just have this done instead of going to the operating room. So just just keep an open mind and see what you can do. Kids are resilient. They're very forgiving. That's quite amazing. And I think these little things, or at least it seems like a little thing to, to change your practice, but it does have a big impact in your patients' lives for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and if people want to find you, do you have a, a website with Pediatric ENT or are you on any social medias that you want to share? Yeah, so our practice in Utah is PKNT. Uh, we're not heavily in the um, social media space yet, but I'm happy to interact with other other physicians. I've done it quite a bit, actually, um, different roundtables and things. I have an email that you guys have. If, if they were to contact the show, I'd be more than happy to have you put them in contact with me, with me by phone or by, by email. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jordan. I think it's a wrap. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor Spurgeon Hess and Yvonne Ovijinski. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Kinnebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.